Thank you. The, the only reason I'm standing here on this stage right now is because of this. A diary, 2015. Uh, I've been writing a diary for most of my life, since the age of nine, in fact. And here is my first one, featuring Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse on the front. It's uh, a Let's Disney diary, and the year is 1978. And I found that I really enjoyed keeping a diary because I like to have a record, however imperfectly kept, of things I've done, emotions I've experienced, boys I've fancied, gigs I've been to, clothes I've worn. And I suppose you could say that writing a diary has helped me process my life, helped me work through stuff that's happened to me. And I don't just mean the bad stuff, I mean the good stuff too. And I have 40 of these uh, stacked tidily in my wardrobe. And I never, ever read them. And you will soon understand why. So, 1978 then, uh, it is January of that year, and in the real world, the Conservative Party is in opposition under their leader, Margaret Thatcher, and actually the Conservatives are way ahead in the polls as Jim Callaghan's Labour government heads towards election defeat. Muhammad Ali has just lost his heavyweight title to Leon Spinks, and Abba's Take a Chance on Me is number one in the charts. In my world, the world of a normal nine-year-old girl born in Bury in Lancashire, it is a big week for me, according to my diary. Uh, this is what I jotted down on Monday, January the 23rd, 1978. I wrote to Swap Shop. That's it. No more than that. Just, I wrote to Swap Shop. So no clue as to what I had scribbled to Noel Edmonds all those years ago. But things got a little bit more interesting the next day. Tuesday, January the 24th, 1978. My entry reads, I posted the letter to Swap Shop. <laughs> and then things really started to gather pace. Uh, by Wednesday the 25th, I told Mrs. Hill Lewis, she was my teacher, that we had wrote to Swap Shop. Wrote, that's private education for you. In Lancashire, anyway. And by Thursday, we practiced singing for Swap Shop. Finally, a clue as to what I'd written to Noel about. Clearly, I was in a girl band at school and we wanted to perform on Saturday morning kids' television. I've got to be honest, and I think you'll agree, it's pretty obvious from those kind of entries that 40 years later, I'm going to write a book. <laughs> and I kept these diaries going year after year. And gradually, what was going on in the real world and what was going on in my life, and therefore on the pages of my diary, began to narrow. Because sometimes, as a journalist, I was at the story of the day. The Paris Concord crash, general elections, football World Cups, 9-11, the London 2012 announcement in Singapore. And so for me, so far so good. In 2015, I moved from radio into TV. We've just launched our brand new current affairs program on BBC Two and BBC News. I'm doing a job I love. I have a family I love and some of the best friends I could ever wish for. And I traveled over the years from Berry via work assignments in New York, Japan, Paris, Zimbabwe, Kenya, and Guantanamo Bay, to London, July 2015, to this diary entry, which has become the first page of my book. Without the diary, there wouldn't have been a book. Without the book, I wouldn't be standing here with you right now. 
27th of July, 2015, 4.15 a.m. The kettle's on and I'm Googling inverted nipple before leaving for work. It's cautiously light outside and it feels like it's going to be another hot day. Inside, the house is still. In order, this is what comes up. Number one, congenital. Number two, breastfeeding. Number three, surgery. Number four, breast cancer. There are several more explanations, but I instantly stop reading. Breast cancer. At this moment, right now, in the early hours of this Monday morning, there is a profound shift in my life from a lively, rewarding, ordered world of family, friends, and work to a world where I am no longer in control. Shit. Shit. I might have cancer. Here are the most common reactions when people think or are told they have cancer. Number one, shit. Number two, I'm going to die. Number three, shit. Number four, I won't see my kids grow up. Number five, now what? My younger son, Joe, who was eight at the time that I was diagnosed, was asked by a girl in his class if it was true that his mum, me, had cancer. And Joe said, yes, but it's not real cancer because she's not going to die. From child to adult, most of us automatically assume that cancer equals death. And for some of us, it does mean that. That is just a fact. It's outrageous and it's unfair that some of us are going to die from cancer. But not all of us. Cancer survival rates in the UK have doubled in the last 40 years. That's according to Cancer Research UK. Half of all people diagnosed with cancer in Britain will still be with us 10 years later. In the case of breast cancer, those survival rates for 10 years or more are a decent 78%. Good enough? No. Way better than it was? Absolutely. So we're not all going to die from cancer, although it didn't stop me feeling that I would. Back to the book. Thursday the 30th of July, 2015. I am completely distracted and can barely concentrate on work, but I know what's coming. I know I have breast cancer. Friday the 31st of July. The GP welcomes us into her office, and I try to read her expression. Impossible, because her face is impassive until we sit down. And then it changes to one of sympathy, as she says exactly what I'm expecting to hear. I have the results of the biopsy, and it is malignant. At that moment, it feels as though a colossal fist has come crashing down on my head the word malignant, crushing me cleanly and swiftly. Mark, my partner, captures my hand to hold it in his. My eyes are locked on the GP, who's saying these words in a compassionate, low-key way. She's waiting for me to react. I don't sob or swear. I'm silent as I absorb her sentences and try to process what this means. The feeling of being battered lasts only seconds. It should take longer. But soon, I am weirdly calm. And because I am composed, Mark is too. I am not afraid at all. After all, I was expecting this. 
Now, of course, when Mark and I get outside the GP, I absolutely cried, really cried, obviously. And then when the tears stopped, I was so cross. I was indignant and furious, thinking, this, this cannot be happening. This is unbelievable. It's a joke. I haven't got time to have cancer. What the heck is going on? There was no getting away from it. It was a devastating blow. And my world, my family's world, had been turned completely upside down. And it made me feel totally out of control. And I'm one of those women who hates feeling out of control. Like the illness was in charge of me. But then I found there was one thing I could control. How I approached the disease. And after weeks of tests and biopsies and scans, it became clear that the cancer I had was treatable, albeit by having a mastectomy and six sessions of chemo and 30 doses of radiotherapy. And that's when I thought, I can do this. I can totally do this because it's not going to kill me. So of course I can do the treatment and I can do it with positivity and maybe even some energy as well. I just felt like I wanted to confront it, look it in the eye, get on with it, get it over with and then get on with my life. Now, I have no idea if being positive has any effect on illness, but it just felt like the best option for me. And also, I wanted to be open about it. Because as you know, there is a stigma still, bizarrely, around cancer. Conversations are hushed or awkward because few dare ask if it's going to kill you, even if you happen to know the answer yourself. I knew I didn't want to be timid about cancer. We don't lower our voices when someone has Parkinson's or dementia, so why should we for cancer? As a BBC journalist and broadcaster, I've reported on hundreds of other people's challenges over the last two and a half decades. And many, many individuals have trusted me with some incredibly personal stories, and in some cases, some distressing experiences, both on radio and TV. So it just felt absolutely the right thing for me to share my own challenge, to try to uh, attempt to highlight the reality of living with cancer and to try and demystify the treatment involved. I thought, okay, if I don't know what a mastectomy is, maybe some other people don't. So, as Rosie said, I started to record those video diaries. And the fact that so many people have watched them and shared them on the BBC News site and Twitter and Facebook and YouTube, etc., I think tells you that there is a demand for factual, straightforward, low-key, trustworthy information about living with cancer. Um, I, here are just a couple of the many, many messages I received after I, the diaries went online and on TV. Dear Victoria, this is on Facebook. Dear Victoria, I hope this message finds you well and in good spirits despite the challenges of your treatment. As a doctor, I felt compelled to write and tell you how, how impressed I am by your updates. I can't begin to emphasise how important your message is to the many people who are about to start treatment for cancer. You've courageously show, chosen to do something wonderful demystify the reality of treatment. By allowing people to see what managing cancer really entails, you've helped thousands of patients, medical professionals, and family members gain an insight into what is to come. As you so articulately stated, it's often the fear of what is to come that causes such worry. Good luck, stay on the sunny side, sleep well, and stand a little taller knowing you're helping others. Best wishes, Dr. David Clark. And just one more if you'll indulge me. Dear Victoria, my husband and I have just watched your video diary on radiotherapy. All I want to say is thank you. I, like you, was diagnosed with lobular cancer last year 
and after a mastectomy and chemo, I'm now about to start radiotherapy next week. So I feel I've been living the same journey as you have, and have found your video blogs inspiring and so, so helpful. When things have been bad, my husband always said, what would Victoria do? I'm so grateful to you. Thank you, and much love. Julia Kiprianu. Interestingly, I found I could do um, the following things when I had cancer, which I had no idea was possible. I found I could pick the children up from school, drive, drink wine, go to my friend's 40th birthday party and stay up till 3 o'clock in the morning, dance to elbow, drunk, with my mates in my kitchen, go to my work's Christmas do, and laugh a lot. Who knew you could do all that when you had cancer and were having treatment? I didn't. I sort of thought, effectively, you sort of kind of quarantined for six months where no one sees you drained and exhausted with your hair falling out. Not so for me. The day after we told our boys that I had cancer, my older son, Oliver, who was uh, 11 at the time he was, asked me, are you not angry you've got cancer? Because I am. And I wasn't angry, and I'm not angry. There's no point when you look at the stats. Uh, when I was diagnosed, the facts were that one in three people would get cancer in their lifetime. So uh, out of me and my brother and my sister, it just happened to be me. Those figures are now one in two, according to Cancer Research UK, because we're living so much longer. So we've got to get used to it. And as I explained to my son, the energy I had, I wanted to use to concentrate on getting through treatment and getting well. Not everything about cancer, for me, was terrible. Losing my hair was really dispiriting. It was probably the worst thing about having cancer for me. But I promise you, some of the happiest moments of my life were when I had cancer. And that was unexpected and a revelation in a way. Obviously, you know, I know you know, I'm not saying I'm glad I got cancer. I'm simply saying there were many, many good things which I experienced, which I wouldn't have done had I not had this illness. They include the NHS, the glorious, wonderful, magnificent NHS and its staff. If I hadn't had cancer, I wouldn't have met gorgeous, kind Utra, the breast cancer nurse who helped look after me, or the consultant who saved my life, Mr. Katari, or Emma, the witty nurse who helped me through chemo. Clever, compassionate, kind people who I feel privileged to have got to know. I wouldn't have experienced the kindness of strangers, amazing and wonderful and beautiful strangers, people I will never, ever meet, but who I actually feel like I love, bizarrely. And in our lives, at school, in work, we give attention to the loudmouths, don't we? The aggressors, the online trolls, the people who do vile things. But I can tell you based on my experience, that 99.9% .9 of people are kind. They just quietly go about their lives being lovely, and I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't had cancer. What has cancer taught me? I wish, I really wish there was something profound I could pass on to you. There isn't. You already know that the most important things in your life are your family, your friends, and your health. There is this, though. Perspective. There are elements of having cancer that are shit. And compared to that, everything else seems doable. You've got a cold, I promise you, you'll be okay. That annoying colleague at work still hasn't done what they said they were going to do and it's winding you up. It really doesn't matter. 
Getting your child to do their homework is like pulling teeth. It's not the end of the world. Mostly, it will all be fine. And now, squeeze every second out of life. And I want to say to you, don't wait to do that. Do it now. Do it tonight. Do it tomorrow if you're not already doing it. And hopefully we're all going to live to be 100. And you know, as that doctor who emailed me said, often the fear of what's ahead can be worse than the thing itself. That thing is cancer. And I don't have it anymore. Thank you. Thank you.